Hey, this is Jared Wellman. I'm the lead pastor at Tate Springs, and this is our podcast. God is telling a story of hope and redemption. Hope and redemption. Redemption that can only be found through Jesus Christ. I hope that this is a blessing and inspires you to discover your part in God's story. I want to read the text to you. It's Psalm 139. So Psalm 139. So I'm going to start in verse 1. That's where we'll be. While you're doing that, while you're getting there, I want you to kind of know who I am a little bit. So I told you that I've got a big brown heart. That's because the rest of me is big and brown. There's two explanations for that. The big part is I love barbecue. I absolutely love it. And it's, one of, it's my favorite food of all time, and I like to eat a lot of it. And the truth is, I was much larger at one time. I was well over 500 pounds. God's been doing a work in my life, and I've lost about 150 of that. So I've got about 150 more to go. But we're going to keep doing it. That's the big part. Go ahead, let that out. And then the brown part is I'm Native American. I'm, oh, we got somebody over here. Yeah, I got a sister in the crowd, I see. And so I'm the tribes that I belong to. I'm, I'm, the, I'm a Comanche. I'm an official member of the Comanche tribe. I'll tell you more about them in a little bit, but I'm also Kiowa and Cherokee. And so those are my people. My dad was a full-blown, uh, full-blood Cherokee man. My mom was half Comanche and half Kiowa. I grew up in my Comanche family, so that makes me Comanche, and I'm on the official roll. So when people ask me what kind of Indian I am, I say a big brown one, and then I tell them <laughs> that I'm Comanche. And so that's a little bit about where I come from. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about my family after we read this text this morning. Psalm 139, and I lied to you, we're actually starting in verse 13. If we start in verse 1, we'll be here until 2 o'clock. So I'm going to start in verse 13. It says this. It says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now I want you to listen to that again because I want you to soak in the powerful truths of this text. Because when you look into the deep awesomeness of this text, what you find out are a few powerful things. One, we are not an accident. There's not a single person that's an accident. Now, one of the things that I do when I'm at my church, and I don't expect you just to do it because of that, but it's just kind of what I'm used to. So if you want to make me feel welcome, you'll help me with this. I'll say to my church, if you're with me, say I am. And then they say I am. All right. And so when I say you're not an accident, if you're with me, say I am. They're good. They're good. But it's important that you understand that you're not an accident. It's important that you understand that you're the divine design of an almighty God who loves you and cares about you. And there is no circumstance in our life that takes him by surprise. Those are powerful and timeless truths spoken by the almighty God. If you're with me, say, I am. Amen. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. 
I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body, and I love this so much, all the days ordained for me. Every possibility of my days, every order of my days, every possibility of me and everything that would go on with me written in your book before any one of them came to be. These truths have been powerful in my life because of the life that I've walked through. Grew up in a small town of Elgin, Oklahoma. Anybody ever heard of Elgin, Oklahoma? God bless you. That never happens. <laughs> Elgin, Oklahoma. And back then, it was a tiny little town. We were class 2A in football. Just, uh, you know, we had one stoplight. It never worked. And so it's just this tiny little bitty town where everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody's business, all the things. Something got out there. It was on the live wire before like five minutes. Everybody knew the business. The family that I grew up in, obviously a Native American family, but the the important thing to know about Native American families where I come from is at least in that time, and it's still mostly true today, is a lot of poverty. There's a lot of addiction, specifically alcohol and drug addiction, and lots of abuse. A lot of our Native American homes in that area are broken. My family represented one of those homes. And so growing up, uh, my mom, she got pregnant with me when she was a teenager, had me when she was a teenager. My dad was never, ever a part of my life. I met my dad for the very first time when I was 20, 21 years old. Never had a relationship, relationship with him whatsoever. The alcohol and the drug addiction, I started, and when I saw it in my house starting up, I grew up in a home where my mom was in and out of the house. My aunts and uncles lived in this house. My great-grandpa lived in that house. And so in the beginning stages, it wasn't so bad. As long as my great-grandpa was alive, as long as my great-grandma were alive, they kind of held us together and kind of held those things at bay. It was kind of outside the house. But once they passed, it came into the house. Now, I got to tell you a little bit about my great-grandma, Jessie. Now, if you know anything about Comanche people, you know that they are a fierce warrior tribe. And my great-grandma, Jessie, is the meanest woman I've ever met in my life, okay? <laughs> the absolute meanest woman I've ever met in my life. And she, I mean, she ruled with a rod of iron, and she was also the doctor in our house, Okay, and so what that meant was if you got sick, she came up with something and typically just made it up. I'm convinced, just made it up. And, uh, and so in our house, I'll give you an example. In our house, if you had a sore throat, her remedy was to poke your throat. Now, let me, understand, let me help you understand what that means. So she would take Vicks Vapor Rub. And in our house, it was the cure for everything. I know some of y'all believe in that because I smelled it a little bit when I came in this morning. <laughs> so we got some Indian medicine in the house, whether you know it or not, okay? And so she would take the Vicks Vapor Rub and she would get a healthy portion on her finger. And she would take the victim <laughs> and she would grab him about the mouth like this, tilt your head back, and she would stick her finger down your throat. That's 100% true. And because she didn't know which part was sore, <laughs> she would leave no part of your throat untouched. And you're gagging, you're trying to bite her, but the way she held you was strategic. You'd bite your own cheeks before you bit her finger. 
and you would gag and you would fight. And listen, there were sometimes my cousins, you know, we bunch of us lived in the house. If we were mad at each other, we'd tell, hey, his throat's sore. <clears throat> She'd go get the Vicks and take care of them. It was awesome. But I remember getting older, getting a little older, and I would, I would try to reason with my great-grandma, Jesse. I'd say, hey, Grandma, look, right here on the, on the box, it says external use only. I said, Grandma, that's on the outside. And she'd point that finger at me that she had used to poke all of our throats, and she'd say, boy, that's for white people. like, I want to be white. <laughs> so that's the kind of home that I started in. But when my great grandpa and my great grandma passed away, it was like any kind of barrier of safety or any kind of barrier against the alcoholism and the drug addiction was just gone. And it just came into our home and my mom, my aunts, my uncles, every single one of them ravaged by it. But you see, what I would learn later on is that it didn't start with my mom. It didn't start with my aunts and my uncles. It was actually their great-grandparents and then their grandparents and then eventually their parents. This was something that had been handed down from generation to generation and that's what I grew up and lived in. And all the drama that comes with that, all the abuse that comes with that kind of life, growing up way too fast, seeing things that kids shouldn't have to see, brokenness in all of these relationships. But God was at work. God was doing things that I couldn't see. God was doing things that I didn't understand. And many times in my own life, I really did think that I was an accident. There's no way you would have convinced me that God created my inmost being, that he knit me together in my mother's room, There's, in my mother's womb. There's no way that I would have believed that I was fearfully or wonderfully made or that his works were wonderful. I didn't know anything about God. In fact, in my house, we were trained. When church people showed up at the front door, you hide. And that's what I did. And I had a closet that I would hide in if church people came by the house because they would come in all shapes and sizes from all kinds of different religions and all kinds of different denominations. They would come to our house because you see, they knew that our house was the one that needed something. They knew that we were the ones that were out of control. If we had one policeman, if the policeman was ever on a call, it was typically at our house. And so we would get kind of visits here and there from that actually quite often. And so one day I'm sitting at the house and I'm probably in about third grade and this big school bus pulls up right in front of our home. And I know it's a school bus, even though they painted it different colors and they try to make it celebratory and it said First Baptist Church on the front, right, or on the side. And so I did what I was trained to do. I went and hid in the closet. I was home by myself in the middle of summer. It's hot. We didn't have air conditioning. And this little old lady, she's probably 150 years old, okay? <laughs> 150 years old, comes walking up to our door and starts knocking. Apparently had no feeling in her knuckles or hands <laughs> because she would not quit. She was absolutely relentless. Now I'm in that closet, I'm sweating, I'm about to pass out. I'm seeing dead relatives, you know what I'm saying? Like all kinds of things are happening in there. It's like a sweat lodge, right? And so I finally break out of there and I go to the door. I was like, yes, ma'am. And she says, are you Michael Keebum? And I thought, that's weird that she knows my name, but yes, ma'am, I'm, I'm Michael Keebum. 
And she says, would you be interested in going to vacation Bible school? And I said, no. I don't want to go to anything with school. It's summertime. And then she got this really sad look on her face. And I said, what's wrong? And she says, well, I, I don't know what we're going to do with all that cookies and Kool-Aid we got. And I was like, what? And she says, oh, we've got all this cookies and it's the best Kool-Aid. I mean, it is so sweet. It's so good. And we've got all kinds of snacks. Yeah, you just love them, but I guess you're not going to go. And I said, well, well hold on. I said, will, will, this, will this bus come and give me a ride? And she said, every day the bus will come by and pick you up. I said, okay, sign me up for vacation. Listen, I was ready to be the valedictorian of vacation Bible school, okay? <laughs> Those snacks had me won over. And so here I am, first Monday morning, that bus comes up and I'm there and I'm having a great, and listen, I go to vacation Bible school and it is the best thing in the world, okay? It's the best thing. I'm having a great time. And she was not lying. That Kool-Aid. I can still taste it right now. It was so sweet and so delicious. And listen, in my house, we didn't get the chance to have all these fancy things. It was the first time in my life I'd ever had a Rice Krispie tree. Yeah, that's why I love Baptists so much. I mean, they're working miracles. They take virtually what is packing peanuts and make them amazing, right? And so I'm enjoying, I'm loving this, but here was the best part. And I wouldn't have known how to express this when I was in third grade or fourth grade. I wouldn't have been able to understand or, or com communicate it in this way, but it was safe. It was a safe place. And for those three or four hours, I wasn't worrying about what was going on at home. I wasn't worrying about what had happened the night before or in those early morning hours. I wasn't worried about any of that stuff. I was surrounded by people that loved me and cared about me. And I didn't understand or know why, but I liked it. I liked it. What I would find out later is that a couple of my school teachers, Mark and Beverly Mattingly, were the ones that knew about my life. And they were members at First Baptist Church in Elgin. They started praying for me and they started praying for my family. And so by the time I got old enough to be in their grades in school, I was already plugged into the church through Vacation Bible School. And that church became my village. And they had made sure that I had school clothes. They knew there were times when I went to school that I'd been wearing the same pair of jeans all week long. Only a couple of different shirts to go with it. They knew there were times that I was missing out on things that the other kids were getting to do because we didn't have the money to do it. They knew that sometimes that in our house, we didn't have electricity or we didn't have water running because we didn't pay the bill. They knew those kinds of things. And those people led the charge from within the church to come and help minister to my family and minister to me. And so by the time I'm in junior high going through high school, I didn't miss anything because my church stood behind me. I never understood it back then. I didn't really know all the things that were going on back then. But later on, I would find out that it was my church that was loving me. It was my church that was modeling for me the unconditional love of Jesus. And so I would love to tell you that during those years that I gave my heart and life to Jesus, that I was saved, but I didn't. You see, growing up the way that I grew up, the way that I lived and the way that I watched life happen in my home, I learned how to hustle and when I say I learned how to hustle, that meant I could go into any environment, any room. I could figure out how everything works. I could learn how to speak their language. I could say what they needed to say, do what they needed me to do. And I could just fit and blend right in. And I figured that out in the church house. 
And so I found a way to go forward during an invitation one Sunday. And I knew here's what happens in this Baptist church. What happens is if somebody comes forward and they give their heart and life to Jesus or they're saved, then it's celebrated. And people celebrate the people that help them get there and they get in this baptistry. And at that time, I wouldn't have known what a baptistry was. I would have said that big bathtub that everybody gets in in front of everybody. And so I wanted people to understand that I was thankful for Mark and Beverly Mattingly. So I went forward, said whatever it is I had to say to the preacher. And before you know it, I was scheduled for a baptism. And I was up there in that baptistry or that big old bathtub getting dunked in front of everybody. It didn't mean anything to me. It didn't, I didn't understand it. I just knew I did what I had to do to get there. And everybody applauded and celebrated the Mattingly family and the church. And I thought that was awesome. I thought that was done. But I did try to read my Bible. I did know that it was important that if you are a Christian, and I probably thought I was at that time, I started reading my Bible every single day. I didn't really understand anything about it, didn't understand what it was saying, didn't understand the story that the whole Bible gives us in Jesus and his redemptive plan for us. I didn't get that. All I knew is I was at a good place with good people and I kind of learned how to live in that spot. But something happened. On November 1st, 1990, I'm a freshman in college. I'm involved with the Baptist Student Union. That's what they used to call it back in the day. Now it's Baptist Collegiate Ministries. But it was like youth group for college folks. And so I'm involved in that. November 1st, 1990, a guy by the name of Bob Shelton gets up somewhere around 9.30 at night. And it's our campus revival and he preaches a simple gospel message. And in that simple gospel message, I heard Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all mess up. We all do bad things. Nobody's perfect. Regardless of what you believe or think, that's just true. We all do bad things. He also said that in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We all mess up. We all do bad things. The Bible says there's a paycheck. It's something that we earn for that and it's death. And it's not just physical death. Everybody dies regardless of what you believe. But there's also a spiritual death, forever separation from God. I mean, that was awful and terrible news. And man, it's like I'm on the edge of my seat hearing some of these things before, but not ever hearing it like this. The Holy Spirit of God was working on my heart and making these truths that illuminated me. And it was so awful in that moment because I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that I messed up. I knew that I did bad things. I just realized for the first time in my life, my eyes had been opened, my heart had been opened to the fact that that sin cost something. And now that paycheck is on me, that I, if I die, I'm separated from God forever. Man, my heart was being broken in that moment. And then he says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I recognized hope in a powerful way. And then he quoted what we shared today, what Jason shared with us today, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And in that moment, not only had the Holy Spirit of God shown me my lostness and my brokenness and my hopelessness, but he showed me the way to him. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will 
be saved. (laughs) What a powerful, powerful truth. And in that moment, during that invitation, I went forward and I found one of our leaders and I said, I want to be saved. I want to know Jesus like that. And I'll never forget sitting down in his office, music's playing in the background while God's dealing with all these other folks. But I'm in this side room with one of our leaders and I pray a prayer, something like this, Jesus, I know I've messed up. I know I've done wrong. And I know that that separates me from you. But I don't want to be that way anymore. Jesus, I know that you lived. I know that you died. I know that you rose again. I believe that with all of my heart. Take my sin, wash it away. Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, save me. And listen, on November 1st, 1990, somewhere around 10 o'clock at night, I was miraculously, powerfully redeemed, saved. Jesus saved my soul. Y'all go ahead and let that out. It's all right. He saved my soul. And I was different. And so now I'm starting to understand these incredible truths that I was created by God, that from the imagination of God and the knowledge of God and the planning of God, the purpose of God, all those things, I was created. I was not an accident. I had believed that I was. I didn't understand how God could work in someone like me or that I could even be a work of him. I didn't know that I was fearfully and wonderfully made. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like where I came from. I was ashamed of my family, all of that. But in this incredible moment, I began to see God's hand work in my life and see his plan come together. And so the Lord saves me on November 1st, 1990. I immediately begin to pray about a call to ministry and God begins to show his hand different things. God's beginning to work in my family. My mom, my mom who was at this point living as a homeless person in a park that right now is only about three blocks from the church that I serve as pastor at. And our relationship had been broken. And if you had asked me at that point in time about my mom, I would have told you that I hated her, that I was ashamed of her. I couldn't understand why she would choose that life of alcohol and drugs and abusive relationships over me. But out of the blue, out of the blue, my mom calls me and she was sober. And understand, I've not been around my mom in a few years But anytime she'd ever called me, she was never sober. She was sober and she said, uh, she knew that I'd been a part-time youth pastor at a little church there in Lawton. And she said, can I go to church with you Sunday? I said, okay. I said, "Um, where can I pick you up? And she told me where to pick her up. And in my heart of hearts, just being honest, transparent with you, I had no expectation that my mom would be there. But I pull up to that spot, I pull up to that park, and there's my mom. Now understand, living homeless, when I pick up my mom, she had found a dress. I don't know where she'd found this dress, but you could tell it was in her heart and her mind, her effort to be as pretty as she could be. I hadn't seen my mom in a long time, and I could see that she'd lost a bunch of weight. She was just skin and bones. 
She had her hair fixed as nice as she could fix her hair. And she had on these big old giant sunglasses, like Hollywood sunglasses, you know. And I went to, to walk her to the car and, and I said, Mom, why do you got these glasses on? And I lifted up her glasses and her eyes were completely yellow where they're supposed to be white. I realized that her skin had become jaundiced as well. And she let me know that she had, had been diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver. Alcohol and drug-induced cirrhosis of the liver. Because of her alcoholism and her addiction, she was not even considered for a liver transplant and certain medical procedures that would have saved her otherwise. She says, I'm sick, and I don't know how much longer I have. I want to go to church. And so all the anger that I had, all the shame that I had gathered up for my mom seemed to be just washed away in that moment. And we go to church that morning, and... Uh, my pastor is just preaching a simple gospel. Jesus lives. He died. He rose again, paying the price for our sins. He can make you brand new. We get to the invitation time. And the way that we worked was that my pastor, myself, and any of our staff would be there at the front in case people wanted to pray with us or uh, just want us to, to visit with them a little bit. And so you know, before the music can even play, my mom, who would have been sitting like right about over here, starts to walk out into the aisle and starts to come forward. And my mom walks right past me. She walks to my pastor and I see them visit. I see him motion to a little old lady named Eloise Fraley. And they sit down on this front pew right in front of me. And I listen as my mom gives her heart and life to Jesus. And I couldn't believe it. But I could hear it in her heart. I could hear it in her voice. She gave her life to Jesus. And this woman, who was an alcoholic drug addict for most of her life, listen, I'm telling you, this is a miracle of God, for the next 11 months of her life, did not take another drug, did not take another drink, and she went cold turkey without a single detox symptom. Incredible, the mercy of God in that moment. I'll never forget, after the service was over, I grabbed my mom and I hugged her real tight and we had a moment that we hadn't had in, in a long time. And I said, Mom, why didn't you come and talk to me? And she said, I wanted to talk to a real preacher. <laughs> Fair enough, Mom. Fair enough. But she wanted to make sure that she got it right. She wasn't going to take time with an amateur like myself she wanted a professional, you know? And I watched my mom be completely transformed and different. She did things that I didn't find out until after she passed away. She had been going to share her testimony at different Indian churches in our area. She was showing this incredible fruit of salvation. God mended our relationship in ways that can only be defined as miraculous. We had moments I never thought we'd get to have as, as mother and son. But on December 26th, 1993, I just finished preaching at my church on a Sunday night, went to the hospital, and uh, it was chaotic. Nurses going in and out in my mom's room, and um, 
And it was, it was, it was bad. In fact, they wouldn't even let me go in the room. And so I went to the chapel there and I got on my knees and I begged God, God, please don't take my mom. Like she's finally the mom I've always needed. And finally the mom I've always wanted. Don't, please don't take my mom. It's almost like the Lord shushed my mouth and just said, go, go see her. And I go to her room immediately and it's a completely different scene. It's peaceful. I go in and it's like you could sense the presence of God. I mean, it's almost like you could cut it with a knife. And I go to my mom's bedside and she looks so beautiful and so radiant. And I asked my aunt who was there, I said, did, you know, did they give her something? You know? and, and my mom would not take any kind of drug to make her comfortable because of what she'd been through and she didn't want to do that. She said, I would never, I'm not gonna do that. They said, we don't know. And my, my family doesn't understand spiritual things and we don't know what happened. She just changed. And I was like, I know. <laughs> and I went and I held my mom's hand and her eyes were closed and she was just had a little smile on her face. And I just started to tell my mom what heaven was gonna be like. Everything I'd read about, everything I'd heard in the old Ray Boat song, you know, I, I started telling her everything I could think of about heaven. And I kid you not, and it's not some emotional preacher story. I'm telling you the truth. My mom sat my hand down, put my hand down, and then she raised her arm just like this. And she got the most beautiful smile I've ever seen. And she put her hand down, and she was gone. And you could feel the presence of God in that place, like I've not felt since. It was thick, it was powerful, it was strong, comforting, and peaceful. And she went to be with the Lord. And man, I was so happy for her. And then I was so mad at her. And all the things, you know. But God began to do a redemptive work. Not long well, I say not long after that, but it wasn't long after that. I got to see my aunt come to know the Lord. I got to see another aunt come to know the Lord. Uh, just recently, I saw her oldest brother give his heart and life to Jesus. I've, I've seen my brother, my brother who's exactly 11 months younger than me, different, different dad, same mom, days before he passed away because of cirrhosis of the liver alcohol and drug induced days before he went to before he died uh, a chaplain friend of mine led him to Jesus and so I've seen this incredible redemption of God and I shouldn't be surprised by it right I shouldn't have been surprised all that God was doing because God showing his faithfulness I'll never forget I was first starting out as a youth pastor and um, and I thought it was really important to have a cool t-shirt for summer camp. And so I went to this guy named Ed Hoosier, who's a Native American artist in Lawton, Oklahoma. I said, I need the coolest camp shirt ever. And he goes, you just come, we'll work it out. So I've been going, I'd go into his office and we'd have all these little appointments to make it just right and so. And one day I come in, I see this beautiful piece of artwork, Native artwork on his wall. And it'd been there the whole time. I just hadn't really realized. In the right-hand corner, it said Keybone. It's my last name. I like, Ed, why is my name on your painting? And he said, boy, don't you know what your name means? 
And I said, okay, I have no idea what my name means. People would ask me, you know, people would ask me all growing up, what does your name mean? I'd say stuff like strong buffalo, you know, like I just make something up. <laughs> and uh, they're like, ooh, that's awesome. And uh, I was like, yeah, pretty strong buffalo. And, uh, and so I told him that story and he, he had a little laugh. And he goes, well, man, he goes, You're, he goes, the reason why I paint under that name is because of what it means. He said, there was a Kiowa chief named Big Bo. And he, was, he had this reputation for being indestructible. He couldn't die. But there was a time that he went out on a hunt and he was ambushed by soldiers. He and the men that he had taken with him, most of the men that were in the camp had gone with him. They were ambushed. Most of them had perished. Most of them died. And they saw Big Bo die. And so they came back to the camp. Those who were left came back to the camp, let everybody know that Big Bo had died. They'd seen it. They knew that he was dead. And so they began the Kiowa custom of mourning, that is to mourn for three days and then choose a new leader. On that third day of mourning, when they were about to choose a new leader, Big Bo came walking back into the camp. He was alive. And so they changed his name from Big Bo to Kibo Da, which meant stronger than death. And he became their chief again. And I was like, that is way better than strong buffalo. <laughs> so I was really proud of that. Like, that was really awesome. Well, then, just a couple of weeks later, I'd been asked to uh, share my testimony at a Native American youth rally. And so I go in and I'm sharing, you know, I'm just getting ready to share. And, and they're singing these songs. They're singing these native hymns. And, uh, and they start singing these traditional hymns, but in the Kiowa language. And I keep hearing my name over and over and over again in these songs. So I go to one of the elders, one of the older men there. And I say, hey, are they saying my name in those songs? And he said, boy, don't you know what your name means? And I was like, how is it that everybody knows what my name means except for me? And so I told him what I just learned just a couple of weeks before. And he said, boy, there's more to the story. He said, when missionaries came to start sharing the gospel with the Kiowa people, they didn't have a word to say that Jesus was dead and then came back to life until they came across Kiboda. And they could say that Jesus was stronger than death. He said, son, your name means salvation. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before any one of them came to be. And it was from that point that I knew that God had been completely in charge of my story. He made me on purpose. He put a purpose in me to go and proclaim and share the gospel and to be a minister of the gospel, to go and take that salvation message to the world wherever he would send me, that he was a part of my mom's story. He was a part of my dad's story. I got to reconcile with my dad. I got to see incredible things happen in my family. Today, I'm married to an amazing woman named Jennifer. We'll celebrate our 21st anniversary this December. I have three kids, Hannah, Micah, and Sarah. We were told we wouldn't be able to have kids because of different medical issues. And God just said, you know what? I'm going to let you have kids anyway. They're living, breathing miracles. When my wife and I got married, it was the first church wedding that any of my family had ever attended. The hand of God is good. 
And I don't know what your story is this morning. I don't know if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or if you've been walking with him for a long time. But here's what I would tell you. If today you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, what if the Holy Spirit of God right now is working in your heart to help you realize that you're not here on accident? That you even showing up here today at Tate Springs Baptist Church was not a fluke, but maybe, just maybe, it's this place that he brought you to, to hear how much he loves you, how much he cares about you, and how your life is not an accident, how you're very much on purpose, but most importantly, how much he loves you. And he loved you so much, and he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus here to live, to die for our mess-ups, our imperfections, and then be raised back to life so that we could be forgiven of our sins. What if that is the reason you're here today? Why you were invited to this place at this time? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, there's nothing supernatural or weird about that action. All it is is an opportunity for you to think for a moment about what God may be doing in this moment with you. You see, Mike, I don't know God like that. I've never surrendered my life to him. I've never been saved. Well, guess what? What a great opportunity today. The scripture says, for all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You recognize this morning that the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God working on your heart to show you these powerful truths about what Jesus has done for you. Man, today could be your day of salvation. You could cry out to him this morning, Jesus, I know I've messed up. I know I've done wrong things. I know they separate me from you. But I don't want that anymore. Lord Jesus, I believe that you lived. I believe that you died. And I believe that you rose again. Lord Jesus, save me. I give you my life. If that's you this morning, a couple things. One, you can go to Tate Springs website and there's a link there that says know Jesus and it'll walk you through everything we just talked about but most importantly it'll get you in contact with a church that loves you and cares about you. Even though you may not even know them. They do. Or here in just a little bit we'll be out in the Welcome Center area out in the drop. Jared will be there. I'll be there. Some of the staff will be there. If you want to talk to us and let us know, hey, I, I, I did that or I need to do that or can you help me? I, I want to be saved, whatever. We're there for that. But don't let the day pass without doing anything about what the Lord may have done in your heart and life today. And if you're a believer, You already know the Lord. You showed up to church to worship and soak in whatever God had for you. Praise the Lord for that. 
but I want you to understand the powerful truths that you're not an accident, that you're made on purpose for purpose. I'm here today because God worked in the heart and life of Mark and Beverly Mattingly to be believers not just on Sunday when it was time to worship, but to live it out during the week. And they followed their burden that God put on their heart for me. And here's an amazing blessing. Just about four or five months ago, Mark and Beverly Mattingly became members of my church. God loves you. He's got a reason for you. And you may not be able to make sense of anything that he's doing, but he's got you. Father God, I come to you this morning and I'm thankful for this sweet church family and Lord, the blessing they've been to me today. And Lord, I thank you in front of them for the love that they have shown to my friend Jared and his family through some hard and dark times. Thank you for them. Lord, I pray for those this morning that may have cried out to you for salvation or that God, you're working on their heart for salvation. Lord, I pray that this message, the know Jesus link on that website, the drops, and I pray those would be rocks in their shoe. <laughs> they can't get away from until they respond to you. I just want to see him know you, Lord. And God, for this sweet church family, I pray that today you would have re-energized their souls and helped them remember who they are and that God, you're the source of it. And that God, every day there's purpose you have for them. And if they will draw close by your word, draw close by prayer, draw close by obedience, they'll see you. Use them. Lord, I pray for their trunk or treat coming up. God, I pray that you would draw people here like a magnet that need you, that need your love, that need your peace. That these sweet folks would give it to them in droves. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for listening. At Tate Springs, we believe God is telling a story of redemption that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information on how you can have that kind of a relationship, please visit tatesprings.com and let us know. We love you and want to help you discover your part in God's story.